It's a little bit mind-bending to think about, at least for me. But the Bible really includes all of time as we know it, from the very beginning to the very end. In Genesis, the story picks up at creation, right? There's the formlessness, emptiness, nothingness that is turned into the world and universe that we know at the command of God. We learn about the first humans, the first man, the first woman, their family, their lives. And then at the other end of the book, we have the book of Revelation, which is just a vision revealing to John and to all of us who have read it since what to expect at the end of creation. Judgment Day will come. The Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And believers will be caught up together to be with God in heaven for all of eternity. There's really no history of the world before creation and none, at least as we know it, after Judgment Day. Crazy, right? With God's word, we know the very beginning and the very end of all things. But that doesn't mean the Bible is an exhaustive encyclopedia of all of human history. Expecting to find a list of every king of Egypt in the Bible or a record of the history of every other nation that was on earth during Bible times would be kind of like expecting to find a history of China in a book about the American Revolution. It's just not the point. Scripture, as we know, has a very narrow point. It's not intended to be purely informational or historical. God's purpose with Scripture is to point people to the Savior, to point people to salvation in Jesus. Naturally, that means that there are going to be a lot of omissions, things left out of the Bible. We really don't hear much about Jesus' childhood or the early lives of his disciples. And there are 400 whole years between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, for which we need to turn to outside sources to learn about. It would seem we're in such one such gap right now. After all, we know the end, and we know Jesus' ministry, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and even a little bit about the early Christian church, but after maybe around year 90 or so, it seems like scripture goes suddenly quiet. And you know, there is some truth to that. We're definitely in a time in between. We're in between Jesus' first coming and his promised second coming. We're in between the events that have been directly revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. However, to say that God's word is silent about this time would be completely inaccurate. For the next few weeks, as we close out the church year, we're going to look at this time in between, sometimes called the end times, and we're going to see that God has a lot to say about this time. Today we're celebrating the Reformation. Roughly 500 years ago, the German monk Martin Luther did something incredibly bold. He nailed 95 theses, statements for discussion, to the door of the town church. His boldness wasn't in the nailing, though. Today, nailing something to a church door would be vandalism, but in Luther's time, not so much. This was where you would post something you wanted others to see and discuss. Remember, in the 1500s, there were no Facebooks or Twitters or Instagrams or threads or whatever else to post and discuss ideas. He wasn't bold for nailing his theses to the door. He was bold because of what his theses suggested. He suggested that the Roman Catholic Church was erring in its doctrine and its practice. In his world where church and state were inseparably intertwined, such an accusation could mean death. We celebrate the Reformation every year as Lutherans, not because we want to worship Luther himself. We could very easily find plenty of reasons without even having to look too hard not to hold Luther as a hero. The Reformation is worth celebrating not because of who Luther was, but because of the effects of his life and work. Through Luther, God brought truth that was being lost back to his church. We read that truth in our second lesson today. There is no salvation by works. Salvation is a gift given freely by God through faith in Jesus. 
And for us as believers, this is such a wonderful message and beautiful message that it's maybe a little shocking that the rest of the world isn't interested in it. And that's putting it nicely, really. Really, the gospel and those who believe are faced with open hostility more often than not. It shouldn't really surprise us, though. When Jesus sent his disciples out to the towns and villages of Israel with the same message of the gospel, he promised them, you will be hated by everyone because of me. This has sadly been the case all along, and we can find countless examples of the unbelieving world persecuting and attacking believers. The fact is, your faith is going to come under attack. It's a fact of life in the in-between times. That's why the in-between time is a time for steadfast faith. Without faith like that, without faith that can stand up to attack, without steadfast faith, we simply can't make it. We call ourselves Lutheran and celebrate the Reformation because of what God did through the example of steadfast faith in the face of attack in Martin Luther. But today, let's go back even further in time to the ancient Persian Empire. You know the story. Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel was an old man at this point. He had been born in the kingdom of Judah, but Judah was no more. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Judah and sacked Jerusalem. After his victory, he relocated the people of Judah throughout the empire to prevent them from being able to stage a revolt. Daniel and other young men had been taken into into his service and made to work in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Daniel served faithfully and remained faithful to God, But eventually the Babylonian Empire fell too, and it was incorporated into the Persian Empire. Daniel survived this transition as well and served under King Darius of Persia. He was actually one of three officials directly under the king at this point, and Darius even had plans to promote Daniel one more time so that he would be in charge of the entire kingdom. This, of course, made some of the other members of the government envious of Daniel, and they began to spy on him to try to find a way that they could get the king to get rid of him. But no matter how hard they investigated, they couldn't find a single charge they could bring against him. He was simply too faithful in his duties. And already I'm feeling a little guilty because, you know, Daniel had every reason to whine and complain. He had every reason to be a half-hearted servant to the king. If China were to somehow conquer the United States, how easy would it be for you to find excuses to sabotage or at least do a poor or grudging job, you know, malicious compliance, if you were called into government service? There was Daniel, though, faithfully carrying out the duties of the position that God had put him in to the point that his enemies couldn't even make something up about him. He's a great example for us to follow in faithfulness in our vocations and the roles that God calls us to fill. Without any legitimate charges to bring Daniel down, his opponents had to get creative. And I think, knowing the story, we at least can give them credit for creativity, right? They knew that Daniel loved God above everything else, so they realized that if they're going to manage to make Daniel choose between God and King Darius, he'll have to choose God, and they can finally have their smoking gun. So they go and they butter up King Darius. May you live forever, they start out. All the guys, the admins, prefects, satraps, advisors, and everyone else, we all really think that you should make a law prohibiting prayer to anyone other than you for the next 30 days. It'll be really great. Everyone loves you, and this will just bring you more honor and glory. And if anyone's unwilling to follow this law, just toss them into a den of lions. King Darius fell for it. He signed the law. 
it was now official that anyone praying to anyone other than Darius for the next month would be forced to face death by lions. Even Darius himself couldn't repeal the law. The trap was set. God's word tells us that as soon as Daniel got the news, he went home and prayed. Three times a day, he knelt and prayed. The Bible tells us that this wasn't actually anything unusual. It was just what he always did. It's like nothing had changed for him. I don't know about you, but if there was suddenly a law forbidding prayer, I'd probably break it too. And I'm guessing you would do the same. We've been talking about what a powerful blessing prayer is in Bible class for the last few weeks. We wouldn't want to miss out on such a wonderful thing. Better yet, God doesn't prescribe one way to pray. We don't have to fold our hands or raise them or kneel or stand. We don't have to open our windows. We don't have to say our prayers out loud. It would be the perfect crime, right? We could pray right in front of an officer without them ever even knowing. That's not what Daniel does. Sure, he could have prayed silently with his windows closed, but he prayed like he always did. Like nothing had changed because for him, nothing really had. His relationship with God and his connection to him in prayer wasn't based on anything other than God's love for him. And no law, even if it was written in the unchangeable laws of the Medes and Persians, could ever change that. I know the exciting part of the story for all of us is that God protects Daniel and saves him from the lions, but I really think that Daniel's steadfastness is the true highlight of this story. It's nothing short of heroic. It's the same kind of steadfast faith that led Luther to be willing to put his life on the line rather than recant. I wonder what I would have done. What would you have done in Daniel's place? We can hypothesize all day long, but you know what? We actually don't have to. We might not have a king forbidding prayer, but like we talked about earlier, our faith still comes under attack every single day. And when I'm honest with myself, it doesn't take a death threat to get me to trip up. This was Daniel's prayer life, right? It's not like he was ordered to murder someone or cheat on his wife, but prayer and worship were so important to him that it was just as unthinkable not to pray. Thankfully, we don't live in a country that's going to forbid prayer, at least not yet. But it doesn't take that, does it? What keeps you from worshiping and praying? We're all too busy, right? Well, with what? Why are we too busy to worship and pray? Even if under threat by death of lions, Daniel prayed openly three times a day. No one has ever told me I can't pray. What is it that's keeping me from praying? It'll be awkward if someone hears? What if what's keeping me from living my faith? I don't want people to think I'm stupid? Come on. And then... There's the content of Daniel's prayer. In his shoes, what would your prayer be? What do, you th- what do your prayers so often become in your own shoes in an evil world that hates the gospel and hates you for believing it? My first prayers might have been, please God, provide a way out. Please God, protect me from this evil government. Please God, punish this evil government. Please God, remove this evil king from over me and put someone in charge who's going to make it easy for me to follow you. Not Daniel, though. His first prayers are prayers of thanksgiving, even though he might face the death penalty simply for saying them. And that's exactly what he got, the death penalty. God heard his prayers, but so did his enemies. They caught him red-handed and went immediately to Darius. You can almost hear the glee in their voices. Oh, king, remember the law you made? It still stands, right? Yes. Okay, well, you know that guy Daniel, the one who isn't really one of us, but actually an exile from Judah? He has no respect for you at all. He's still praying to his God and not to you. I'm not sure if they realized it right away or not, but Darius' reaction 
was definitely not what they were looking for. Instead of being angry with Daniel and happy to get rid of him, Darius was extremely upset. Maybe he even saw through the trap. He set his mind on saving Daniel. He probably talked to all his best advisors. I wonder if he even consulted Daniel himself, trying to find a way out of this mess. By sundown, however, it was too late. He hadn't found a way. And Daniel's enemies all too eagerly reminded Darius that he couldn't change or repeal the law. So Darius gave the order and had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Before shutting him in, Darius told Daniel, May your God rescue you. The guards pushed a stone over the entrance, and Darius himself sealed it shut with his own ring. We all know the rest. Darius has this long, sleepless night of worrying. He was sick at heart. He didn't watch his favorite shows or have a nice bedtime snack. He just lay there all night thinking about Daniel. And as soon as the sun rose, he ran to the den. Even before he got there, as soon as he was in shouting distance, he called to Daniel, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? Imagine his relief when Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. I'm all right. Sure enough. When they lifted Daniel out of the lion's den, he was totally unharmed. Sometimes people will draw a conclusion from the story, though, that really isn't the point. They'll point to Daniel and say something like, Look, God saved Daniel from the lion's den. And if you're faithful to him, he'll save you from whatever your lions are, too. It's a lovely thought. But this isn't a parable. This isn't the kingdom of heaven is like. This is... A true story, something that actually happened. And sure, God can save you from a literal lion's den or whatever figurative lions you're facing. But that's not the promise here. Never once did Daniel indicate that he was sure that the Lord would protect him. Never once did God send an angel to Daniel saying, Don't worry, if you go into the den, you'll be fine. That's why I think the more amazing thing in this story isn't God saving Daniel. I mean, that's fun, but kind of a no-brainer. Of course an all-powerful God can save a person from some lions. The amazing thing is Daniel's faith, steadfast to the point that he wouldn't even give up prayer at the threat of his life. And the really cool thing is that Daniel's faith, or Luther's, or any other hero of faith, is the same faith that you have. Daniel and Luther weren't some sort of superpowers or believers that had super strength or anything. They have the same faith in the same God that you do. And its power comes from the same God that we have. That means that you could do the same exact things in the same exact positions because of the same exact faith in the same exact God. After all, you too stood before a king with a dilemma. His law condemned you, whether he wanted it to or not. And like the laws of the Medes and Persians, it could not be changed. The law simply said the wages of sin is death, and then clearly and undeniably showed all of your guilt. When Daniel stood guilty of breaking Darius' law, God's word tells us that Darius tried everything he could to save him. And it's not good form for us to disagree with the Holy Spirit, but did Darius really try everything, everything? Why couldn't he be the first king to repeal a law of the Medes and Persians? Maybe because it would mean risking his life? giving up his throne? What king in his right mind would do such a thing? Yours would. You have a heavenly king who set aside his throne in heaven when his law condemned you. 
You have a king who suffered your punishment in your place to satisfy the demands of his law. You have a king who gives you his perfect obedience and a perfect record so that you can stand guilt-free and terror-free before him. You have a king who gives this to you freely. Not because you've earned it, not because you're so special, but because he loves you and there are no strings attached. You have a king who has promised to come back to bring you to be with him in eternal happiness and safety and peace. That's what Daniel knew. That's why nothing changed for him when the law came down that he couldn't pray to anyone but Darius. That's what Luther knew. That's why when the church threatened to make him an outlaw, and ultimately did, he still couldn't speak against the gospel that he had come to know and love. And that's what you know too. This is the steadfast faith that is just as necessary for all the attacks and challenges today as it was in Germany 500 years ago or Persia 2,600 years ago. This time in between is a time for steadfast faith. And by God's grace, that steadfast faith is yours. Now go and live in it. Amen.